Welcome to the Steps Uncertainty Podcast, a four-part series of conversations recorded at the Steps Centre's Politics of Uncertainty Symposium in July 2019. Uncertainty is all around us, but the full depth and breadth of challenges presented by the unknown are rarely fully acknowledged and virtually never embraced. So what kind of methods, behaviours, strategies and responses are needed to deal with different kinds of uncertainty? In this conversation, we'll hear about uncertainty in the areas of disease outbreaks, climate change and disasters and emergencies. The panel are Lila Mehta, Professorial Fellow at the Institute of Development Studies, Melissa Leach, Director of the Institute of Development Studies, and Mark Pelling, Professor of Geography at King's College London. The chair is Marina Apgar of the Step Centre. So we're, we're just going to start off with a, a, a question that we've been essentially grappling with this, this whole symposium. Um, and I'll start, Melissa, with you. How do the politics of uncertainty affect the thinking and practice in the space that, that you're involved in, in disease outbreaks and how we prepare for them? Well, to start with, I, we find that disease outbreaks and their emergence are part of enormously complex systems involving all kinds of dynamics, involving social, technical, viral, epidemiological, ecological factors and processes, and this means that uncertainties are inevitable. Um, there are things that are really unknown, there are things that are unpredictable. Um, and yet, in practice, we frequently find that policy responses are focused on closing down as if one could deal with outbreaks and diseases as if they were manageable risks. Um, and often that leads to responses which are top-down, um, not open to the perspectives and priorities of people they're trying to shape, and often quite unjust in practice and indeed ineffective. So what we've been trying to explore um, in this theme is the different ways that uncertainty arises and the politics of how they're dealt with in different areas. We've been um, identifying at least three sorts of situations in which there is real uncertainty in this area. One is within a given disease outbreak, um, where uncertainties arise in the constant interplay of, of what communities are doing, what the virus is doing, um, and how agencies are responding in a sort of revolving dynamic, something we saw very clearly in the Ebola outbreak in West Africa, where the turning around of the epidemic in the end was, was to do with the way communities learnt in interaction with others. Then we can think about what we, we call possible uncertainties, where you know that there's a given disease, I mean it might be cholera, it might be flu, but you don't know where the next outbreak's going to occur and how it might unfold. And then there's the far more radical potential uncertainty or the more extreme unknowns. The idea being talked about now in the pandemic's world of disease X, which might emerge from as yet unknown viral mutations. We don't know what form it's going to take and where it happens. And these are all areas where actually we need a much better grip on not just a risk-based approach to planning, the standard approaches which are rolling out surveillance and scenarios and vaccines and drugs to, to prepare and respond, but actually are looking at um, diverse forms of knowledge, including very much um, 
that that exists in communities who've been living with everyday disease uncertainties and we've been trying to explore what preparedness from below might look like and how those everyday strategies for living with and managing health-related uncertainties might become a more effective part of preparedness and response. And this is highly political because there's a lot of power and a lot of money tied up in those top-down centralised responses and there are reasons why community perspectives tend to be ignored. So Lila, in, in your case working in climate change and, and development, what are the politics of uncertainty there and, and to what extent are they also bringing up some of those um, similar, similar issues that Melissa mentioned? So basically, uncertainty is a wicked problem in climate change. Uh, climate change is characterized by uncertainties across different scales. Um, you know, we all are experiencing the uh, differences in rainfall patterns, in temperature. The big uncertainty is A, how to capture this uh, by scientists, but also what this means on the ground. And there's this big acknowledgement that it gets more and more difficult to predict as you downscale. So at the local level, how all these big global trends manifest themselves is, very dif is, 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 is uncertain and difficult to capture. So in our project, the starting point was that uncertainty is usually around climate change, has been conceptualized by experts, by modelers, by scientists. But how does it look like for people who are living with uncertainty, who are at the forefront of climate change? So be it in areas that are flooding, that are where embankments are breaching, where they have cyclones. So what does uncertainty mean um, for people on the ground. So we really tried to look at uncertainty from different domains and looking at different scale and temporal scales too. So the so-called above and how they conceptualize uncertainty, the experts, um, people at the, at the below level, and then also the role of uh, the middle or the translators, etc. And we found that they're very different practices and understandings of it. Uh, these are imbued with politics of power and usually we found that uh, those in positions of power tend to want to eliminate or control uncertainty and these can increase the vulnerabilities and marginal, ma the marginal situations of vulnerable and poor people. So in the drive to eliminate uncertainties, you could actually increase them for some. And also local people's understandings and practices, uh, the role of emotion and effect, of storytelling, of culture, of history, a lot of these things are removed from some of these mainstream debates. So even though the IPCC and a lot of experts now say we have to, we're living in an era of uncertainty, we have to embrace it, we have to manage it, you still have this kind of techno-managerialist sort of solution-based uh, thinking uh, that persists. And partly it also is because of politicians, policymakers, they want certainty. Uh, they really don't want these uncertain scenarios and models. Um, and so that's, those are the kind of politics that we're grappling with. And Mark, in your case, working in disaster risk and development, what are, what are your reflections on the politics of uncertainty in that space? Mm. Well, I'll give you two sorts of answer to it. The first quite short and the second a bit more um, extensive perhaps. So the first one is from an analytical perspective. And there certainly there's uncertainty that emerges from the sort of data analysis that's undertaken by uh, hazards, risk or vulnerability modelers, the complexity of the data, uh, the sophistication of the tools leads to findings that require a lot of analysis or indeed unexpected findings that come from the, the data. There's an uncertainty kind of inherent in the data. There's also an uncertainty that comes from the complexity of social relations and the relationship between people, productive systems and risk or loss. 
And again, that, that, those, those are both analytical problems, if you like. I think more of the discussion that we've had here, more pressing perhaps even, are the, are the uncertainties that come from applied knowledge, if you like. And, that, and there are three of those maybe to flag. All of them, though, come in the cultural context of disaster risk management, which is very much dominated by command and control mechanisms. So a mission of simplifying the uh, practices of those seeking to manage the uncertainty that arises with a risk disaster event uh, and the tools uh, and, and so on. So there's a, a sense of top-down management that pervades the management of disaster risk, impact, recovery, humanitarian space. And that then kind of sits a little bit uncomfortably with an academic project that by and large tries to open up social spaces. So these, these three expressions um, that, are, that are more or less close to the desire to control or the desire to open spaces. The first is quite close to the desire to control, which is the use of risk modelling to reduce uncertainty uh, in, the, in the futures. So hazard mapping of various kinds, vulnerability mapping of various kinds and uncertainty is there a problem to be reduced and a large amount of the investment in risk management has been in refinements often incremental to the modeling and mapping of risk much less effort investment has been put into the other areas of of risk and its relationship to development so if we move from the kind of risk management and unpredictability problem to the second area, which is disaster risk reduction, the relationship between disasters and the way in which they are, or risk disasters, is produced through development choices, individual and more structural as well. There's a sort of ambiguity in the relationship between development and risk. There's a sort of a denial around the ways in which development produces risk and um, continuously for particular subgroups of population as well, the poor, often the women, urban and, and rural. So there's, a, there's an ambiguity, there's a denial there that research tries to unpack. And then thirdly, uh, maybe a bit more emancipatory in potential is around the post-disaster space and disasters themselves then disrupting certainty, certainly disrupting the imaginary certainties that the poor as well as the less poor work and live within. Um, when they experience certain assumptions of responsibility, perhaps that had accrued through time, or the responsibility that maybe their neighbours or government agencies had been cleaning drains, or that uh, decisions about seawall height or practices of one kind or another had been appropriate to a risk that they face. So when that doesn't happen, there's a, there's a disruption in the sorts of uh, levels of trust that uh, these different actors have. So that can, of course, lead to demands for new normalities, and mm -hmm. that's it's in there that potentially this kind of emancipatory space exists. Great, thanks. Well, it's, it, as we've been discussing over the last few days and, and, and thinking across these themes in, in the cluster, um, and it, 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 it came out again from what you've just shared, this this idea of, I mean, you talked, Mark, about, about sort of the disruptive space, right? But we ended up talking about it in terms of it being an opportunity, didn't we? Mm. Uh, we talked about this creative space um, that once 
you embrace or acknowledge uncertainty and that knowledge is necessarily partial, plural, situated, and you sort of sh we can shine a light on it or open up that black box, then becomes the, 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 the opportunity or the potential to actually talk about uh, more emancipatory, perhaps more transformative um, ways in which we, we make decisions and, and this idea of the, the, the imaginaries. And, and we've talked a little bit about the role of, of research and science in, within that. Um, and as just came out in the final plenary, also uh, a fair amount of caution um, of, of not uh, celebrating uh, or romanticizing uncertainty as an opportunity, particularly in light of uh, all of our work in areas where we, we engage with people who are living in very difficult circumstances. So I wonder if you could reflect a bit on that and, and your sort of takeaways from that discussion we've been having and how they link back into, into your work. So in relation to the sort of disease outbreak theme, um, I mean, there's an initial problem in trying to frame uncertainty as, a, as an opportunity when actually we're, we've framed the problem in the first place as a problem. This is about trying to ensure that people are protected from and are safe from quite horrible happenings, nasty outbreaks of nasty diseases that, that kill people. Um, but I think there are two ways in which embracing uncertainty can be creative and open up opportunities. One is if you actually reframe the whole question to say, what does it take to build healthy futures? Um, and then that does open the way for a set of debates and dialogues that are not about um, mitigating risk, holding off the danger of an outbreak but actually opening up to say what does health and well-being mean in this particular context, what kinds of institutions, practices, forms of knowledge are important in, in assuring it, and how can we have a more open, inclusive debate which recognises the diverse priorities that are going to exist between different communities, between women and men and older and younger people and people of different backgrounds in those settings, um, and can enable them to work with local, national, global authorities to think about what, what health in its broadest sense means um, for everybody. But there's also another way, if one still retains that framing about um, preparing for and responding to disease outbreaks, where I think there is a, the possibility of a creative space, and that's one that, that actually um, enables confidence and capability um, for people to know, and this is people at all levels, whether they're local community members or, or, or national or global authorities, that they have the capabilities to respond to something that you can't predict um, and that is inherently uncertain but may happen at some point in the future. And those capabilities and that kind of confidence um, may well result from things like the availability of a repertoire of technical knowledge or social knowledge, the existence of social relations that can be mobilized in times of difficulty. For instance, in the Ebola outbreak, we saw people making use of local labor groups or youth groups um, mm. to get together to make quarantine, quarantines and patrol bush paths, for instance, or 
burial teams formed locally out of pre-existing friendship and kinship relations. So it's having that, that set of um, institutions and relationships to mobilise. Um, and also a, an array of flexible institutions to be able to draw upon um, at higher levels as well and the communication capacities for be, people to be able to call on the inputs that they need in particular circumstances. And then I think a recognition that plural forms of knowledge um, are relevant to handling an outbreak and that those will be respected. So again, to turn to Ebola, um, that epidemic only turned round when external agencies appreciated the social knowledge and priorities around burials and what it took to become a good ancestor and why that was as important to people um, as stopping the transmission of a virus for an effective response to be mounted. So I think, I think confidence in capabilities and a confidence that one's capabilities are there and will be respected and used is part of the creative space that is opened up in this way by moving away from those very top-down, risk-based command and control approaches that we've seen typifying this area. Lila, I wonder with climate change, given the sort of the scale dimension of that is, is, um, is, is global, right, and, and sort of that thinking across those scales, what does, what does that creative space we're talking about look like in, in that context? So yeah, climate change is a global phenomenon, but it takes place in particular places and localities. So obviously at the global level, there is an opportunity and you know, there's, now there's this whole buzzword around transformation. So you just don't talk about adaptation to climate change, but you're talking for about a large scale transformation of society the meaning and trajectory of development. So that would mean really restructuring the status quo at all different levels. Now that is a huge task. It's also en vogue now, it's a big buzzword. So let's look at what it means in particular places. So this research that we're doing, uh, on, which is in the Tapestry Project, funded by the Belmont Forum, North Face, the EU and various research councils, um, is addressing very uncertain environments. These are marginal environments. Now marginal environments are, they're considered to be marginal by policymakers, but actually for many people there they're quite productive, people lead lives, but a lot of their local knowledge and understandings are often denigrated. Um, and I guess it's about reframing some of these landscapes and places and people, uh, putting people's well-beings, identities up front, and that's what we're seeing in some of these places. So we're talking about Areas like Dryland Kutch or the Sundarbans, these are areas that don't really count very much uh, for policymakers. These people want to convert these drylands into green, lovely agriculture spaces, irrigation spaces. It's unrealistic, that doesn't really happen. And, and those desires to control uncertainty in these areas increase the vulnerabilities and insecurities um, of the local residents. So a way in which it could be an opportunity would be to say, okay, so how can we reframe some of these debates? Um, and I think there is a slight danger in this idea of embracing uncertainty to, because there are people living with uncertainty all the time. Mm -hmm. They've adapted their lives to it and they actually, you know, should they be constantly, you know, moving from day to day mm -hmm. where they don't know where their food's coming from, where, uh, whether, when the rainfall's coming, whether they can grow their crops, whether they're going to have fodder for their animals. I mean, you know, we can study the processes and the practices around it, but I think it's more like... Um, the above probably needs to embrace it more than people mm -hmm. below. But 
clearly, I think in this project tapestry, we're not just looking at these different groupings, but we're seeing what kind of hybrid knowledges and alliances can come together. So I guess it's this kind of, we need multiple perspectives to understand what's going on in terms of uncertainty and the changes. And that can only take place through a multiplicity of voices. Now, a lot of these marginalized, marginalized people, their voices are often not brought to the table. So can we think of these alliances where you have these different actors coming together? Uh, so there are these initiatives that we're studying in these patches, um, be they around uh, looking at different indigenous breeding in, by pastoralists or um, ways in which one can carry on farming in an area where farming is really, really difficult. There are questions there about scaling up, about learning, about incumbency, you know, are we going to reproduce some of the existing power relations. There's also the role there of the middle, the um, the translators, the interlocutors, their role in some of this creativity. And I think as we've seen in this meeting, um, there's a lot of potential to address a sort of creative forms of research, of coming together, of expression, uh, be it through art workshops, through storytelling, through theatre. Um, and I think these are areas where that we can push further. And also things like roundtables where you get different actors coming together uh, to try and reimagine these places in different ways. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For the other episodes in this series and more resources on uncertainty, visit steps-center.org slash uncertainty.